listening to the Britpop Show. Sponsored by Creation Day Festival. Playing the best and the rest of Britpop. Welcome, gang, to the Britpop Show. And we have a very, very special guest this week. It is Jane Savage, who, as co-founder of legendary PR company Savage and Best, is widely credited as being the main instigator of the Britpop movement that swept the UK in the mid-1990s. We'll be talking to Jane immediately after this by Haven. something by Haven and as I said at the start of that song we have a very special guest in the studio we have Jane Savage who is a writer and publicist best known for being at the epicenter of the Britpop movement and during this vibrant and exciting period Jane and her company Savage and Best represented now listen to this Suede, Pulp, The Verve, Elastica and almost every band associated with Britpop and according to the book cover says had the kind of fun that is now banned by the proper job authorities. Jane, what exactly does a PR person do? Oh, that's the most difficult question I've ever been asked. Um, I, I, I do like to start off with an easy question. <laughs> oh, well, you're meant to represent to the best of your ability, the best intentions of your client. I imagine that's what somebody would say. Um, but I think when I'm asked about what a PR should be, how they should uh, behave, how to be a good PR, it's they should think like a journalist. Because journalists have got so much more to do than listen to you babbling on about something. Just think like them and you'll get a long way. So I guess in the olden days, maybe it's changed. It was I wanted to make all the bands that I loved famous. 
and I, and I told all my friends, and all those friends were journalists. So that's that's how it happened. And when you got into that, well, when did you get into that? Was it in the nineties or was it before that? Well, it was kind of. Um, I mean, it's actually the end of the eighties. Um, I had a job. I actually started off doing gossip for the Shaman, and that's a great job title, isn't it? And I would be paid fifty pounds a week to get the Shaman in the gossip columns, just to get their name in the gossip column. And so a perfect gossip story might involve the shaman driving down the M1 from, you know, up north somewhere to London to play a gig and the back doors of the van opening up and uh, a thousand copies of their 12-inch single uh, like, you know, flying out the back of the van onto the motorway and getting completely destroyed by a juggernaut so that if you see one in a shop, you should buy it because it's quite rare. So that's a perfect story because nobody gets harmed in the making of that story. And that's kind of why well, I, I used to sit in my office just making up stories like that all the time. And, uh, and I did... Um, I was actually at university, I did philosophy, so I actually learned how to argue really well if somebody, you know, have, a, have an argument about something. And I moved to London because um, I was actually cast in a play in Nottingham, a university play, and I got scared and I said to the, to the director, um, I'm moving to London, I've got a job offer. And then he said, oh, that's, really, that's a real shame. So I said, well, you know, never mind. And of course I realised I would be, he'd see me knocking around town, as it were. So I thought I actually had to move to London. So I moved to London. I'd been working at Selectivist in Nottingham as well at the end of university, so I was I was really so into music, uh, and I sort of uh, ended up doing press for I just sort of fell into it by doing press for my manager's girlfriend's band, which were Gay Bikers on Acid, Daniel Dax, the Rhythm Sisters, and um, so the beginnings of how I saw it would all work started then. And for instance, I noticed if I um, if I put Gay Bikers on Acid into a movement called the Grebo movement, for instance, with Pop Will Eat Itself and Crazy Head they get twice as much press. So, um, And then if I did a band called Green on Red, and they put they were part of the new American invasion with the rain parade and the long riders, they get twice as much press. So I always remembered that, that movements were very important. So when I started Savage and Best, there was a brief stint at Virgin as well, um, in, in between time, um, it's sort of the end of the, right at the end of the 80s. And um, there, when I was at Virgin, actually, I got a, phone, a very scary phone call from a manager who had managed a band, I think it might have been Miles Copeland, I think it was Stuart Copeland's brother, and he managed a band that was signed to Virgin, who I'd never heard. And um, he said, you've got to fill their schedule. They're flying in next Tuesday. And I was really scared. I was 23 years old. And I thought, I'm never doing an American band again because they'll just give me a schedule. So I remember that and the movements thing. So when I started up Savage and Best, I looked for bands that sounded similar, you know, so I did Curve and, and, Curve and Moose and Lush, and that became Shoegazing. And then all these other bands, um, I refused to do an American band, like the Smashing Pumpkins, who we were offered. And I decided to do bands live around the corner. And so a journalist would say, have you got any bands with an interview? And I'd say, yes, I'm just coming here. They'll be here in 10 minutes. So apart from Pulp and the Verve, who lived you know, up the motorway, most bands were kind of from the London area. And that became the Camden scene. And that's how Britpop started. And it's not right, though, is it, that you, you coined the Britpop phrase? Is that no, right? I did not. No, I absolutely did not do that, no. And I'm quite proud of not doing that, actually. <laughs> <laughs> it, comes whole... with it. it comes with it. It's such, such a... Yeah. It, well, there's something that comes with it. You call yourself the Britpop show and people think, oh, you know, but yeah, we're, we're I just guess playing it's got, good music from the 90s. It's got jingoistic um, sort of uh, connotations, I suppose. And also, I don't know, because it's got the word Brit in it and the word pop in it, it doesn't, it doesn't do very well, does it? I mean, Britpop was either coined by Stuart McConey or maybe Andrew Harrison, um, maybe Steve Lamack. I mean, it was, it was uh, mainly in that first Britpop article, which was the Select magazine cover in 1992. Brett, was, Brett Anson was on the front superimposed in front of a Union Jack. That article only happened because Suede, I mean, Select wanted to do another Select cover, I mean, of, of Suede, and they couldn't uh, do it after Q, because Q, Q were an old man's title, as it were, and they just put Suede on the cover after two singles. So they thought, how are we going to get Suede on the cover of our magazine again? And, uh, and we all said, I know, we'll put all your other bands in, like Pulp um, and the Auteurs, and we'll, we'll make this feature part of a movement. And that was the very first Britpop article with the headline, Yanks Go Home. And we couldn't get Pulp in a, in a monthly magazine, so we really wanted that article to happen because it meant that Pulp could move to the next stage from rather just getting live reviews to be in a monthly magazine. Um, and the reason you're on today is because you've got a book coming out all about, all about Suede and their, uh, and their album coming up. We will talk about that shortly, but before we do that, you're co-hosting the show very kindly today, and you've just mentioned Pulp. Uh, and one of the songs you chose is This Is Hardcore. Is there any reason particularly behind that one? Probably because it's so long and I won't have to talk so much. No, that's not true. <laughs> no, This Is Hardcore was, um, was Pulp's attempt to dis, dis, um, associate themselves from the Britpop movement, I think. 
they were going through a bit of a darker darker phase at, at that point and I think they were caught up in it and you know I don't think they wanted to be part of it so I think this was just there it was and also I think it's got the greatest video of all time and I know you can't play the video live on the radio but it's a, it's an amazing song it's stunning I think well, that's right. So we're going to play uh, all six minutes of it. But, and people often talk about this song as almost like the death of Britpop. It's, the, it's, it's when Britpop ends. Um, so well, here it is, Pulp, this is Hardcore. And after that, we'll be hearing some more from Jane Savage about her new book, Here They Come With Their Makeup On.
this is Hardcore by Pulp, and that is the first I've ever played that one on the show. Uh, I don't know why. Probably because it's one of those that just reminds us of the end of Britpop, and no one wants to remember about the end of Britpop, do they? Right, today's guest, we have Jane Savage of Savage and Best PR Consultancy, who is here to talk about her new book. But before we do that, I'm going to quiz her, obviously, about all of the things that she got up to during the Britpop era, which is going to be quite a lot because she represented basically everybody who was anybody in the Britpop era. Now, Jane, quick question for you. Is it true that you sellotaped animal nitrate, (laughs) suede's animal nitrate to a cushion? Yes, I sellotaped a cassette of Animal Nitrate, Suede's third single, to a purple velvet cushion that I found in my office, and I biked it to the, to the uh, features editor of the NME with a note that said, another great disappointment. Yes, that's the, that's the kind of shenanigans I used to get up to in the olden days. Um, so, next question. <laughs> and, it, and it obviously worked. It um, did work. It was single of the week, and well, I knew it would be anyway. I think I just wanted to... I was becoming a bit sort of Reggie Perrin's grot shops by that point when I thought I could get away with anything. So, I mean, you know, that was probably the least of it, really. And is there any song that you first heard it and you were like, yeah, that is definitely going to be a hit? Um, I thought you were going to ask me what was the first Sway track I heard that made me fall in love with them, which I might say later. But um, Well, feel free to answer that question first. Okay, well, that was Pantomime Horse. I think um, when I saw them live very early at the Falcon and a couple of other places... Pantomime horse. Brett was so confident, and he was so sort of kind of like um, ambiguous and sort of you know sex, sexual rather than sexy. That I thought um, pantomime horse. The lyrics are so incredible. With have you ever tried it that way? It could be about a chocolate blancmange or something, but it probably wasn't. So and and uh, obviously the drowners um, with that we kissed in his room to a popular tune. That was kind of so ambiguous as well. And I thought I know what he's doing, you know. And that's what made me fall in love with Sway. Their lyrics. As to did I know there was going to be a hit? I don't know. I think, I mean, for instance, when we talk, I mean, Bittersweet Symphony, obviously, I mean, you know, but we had maybe a 20-minute version of that, you know, in the office. And so that, and then I think that was just when we stopped managing the verve because something, you know, our relationship deteriorated at that point. But um, I knew that was a massive hit. And then also, I think Pulp suddenly got really good. We took Pulp on after they'd been going for about 10 years. And the enemy said to us, why are you, why are you doing them? They've been around for ages. And I think just around the time of my... I mean, they might have been great without anyone noticing for several years. But around the time of my legendary girlfriend, um, I think um, I thought they just suddenly got amazing. And then the Sisters EP, and particularly Babies and Razzmatazz, I knew they'd be hits. I just knew they'd be hits. And is there any song that you thought, do you know what, this is going to be rubbish, and then it turned out to be a hit? Is there any song that really surprised you? What, that became a hit that I didn't think was going to be a hit, do you mean? Yeah. Gosh... I don't know. I mean, I, I mean, I think I knew Cooley Shaker would do well, even though our office had got so big at that point. I thought the office could handle it. I didn't want to look up to them myself because I thought they were slightly contrived. I can say that now because there's history between us. Um, but um, I mean, did I think there were things that were going to be hit that weren't? That, um, I'm not sure if, I, if I've got an answer to that question, to be honest. I think, you know, towards the end, I was kind of disappointed that Suede's records didn't start charting at, you know, three again. Like, like all the first ones did. And it's all petered out on those last couple of albums. I mean, obviously, Electricity on the fourth album, you know, was a hit. But um, but probably just due to the hype that was around coming up the album before. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask you an impossible question now. What's your favourite Britpop song? <laughs> that is an impossible question, isn't it? Um, but probably, I mean, something, I mean, something like... Floodlit World by Ultrasound, something that not everybody knows that that well, really. But other well, than that... Do you know what? We've got that lined up right now. Can you believe it? <laughs> so we'll play that now. And then uh, after that, we'll, we'll talk a bit more about your uh, your book that's about to be released. This is Floodlit World by Ultrasound. It's from the 1990s.
Bloodlit World by Ultrasound, as chosen as the best Britpop song ever by our current guest, Jane Savage. Jane, I'm going to throw it out there. It's not even Ultrasound's best song. Well, are you going to go for Same Band or something like that? I'm going to go uh, for Stay Young. Oh, Stay Young, yeah, yeah. I don't know what it is about Bloodlit World. I mean, they're all euphoric, aren't they? I mean, Ultrasound is a kind of a strange thing for me because there was a, a massive feeding frenzy around them. And we had quite a big company at that point, and I wasn't even sure if I was going to get their press. And so I knew I had to deliver, you know, because everybody was crazy on them. And so we had to be dressed tiny up as a king of England or something, Henry VIII, with a big, holding a big um, scepter. And um, but Floodlit World is just—I mean, they're all epic. They're kind of, you know, they're like—I um, mean, Hawkwind in indie form or something, you know. But and so I don't know. Maybe you're, maybe you're right. Maybe they've got better songs. That's just my favourite. Yeah, I, I absolutely love. Um, I, th- I think I've played it before. Stay young. I think play. I think I opened the show with it once, and people people were uh, very much enjoying it. But they've recently yeah. released it on vinyl, and I was going to go for it, but it was like sixty five quid or something. Their debut album was. Yeah. It's, vinyl's expensive, but that's a you know that's a chunk of money. Yes. Anyway, we are here to talk about your new book. But before we do that, you have written a book before and that book is called lunch with the wild frontiers and it's described for those of the the Britpop listeners of to this show for those who don't know it it's it's described as a history of Britpop and excess in 13 and a half chapters so people if you like Britpop and if you're listening to the podcast you obviously do like Britpop you need to buy this book and you need to read this so it's lunch with the wild frontiers but there is a story in there i believe about Keith Allen and waking up with him in bed in the Ritz. Yes, in Paris. Yes. That's basically, Keith Allen is a, um, I mean, I still, Keith's one of my best friends. I went to the Cheltenham Festival with him on Friday. And um, and Lily Allen used to work in our office and she was in charge of rolling spliffs, believe it or not. <laughs> but, um, so Keith so uh, was obviously a, a Fulham fan and Mohammed al Fayed said to him, why don't you um, uh, write a Fulham song for me, you know, for, for an anthem or something. So he did. He'd already done Vindaloo or something. So he, he, he wrote this song, and Alfred said, what do you want as a, as a fee? So he said, I want to go to the Ritz with my best friend. So we ended up going there and staying in the Dying Dodie suite, which was basically about 100 feet long, and it was the most absurd thing. We got complimentary Rolex watches, which we left at reception because we, we thought we'd get caught, just like the Cashford question scandal or something. But we kept our salmon pink dressing gowns, <laughs> and we ended up sort of hanging out with Charlotte Gainsbourg, and it was utterly ridiculous. So yes, that was that. That story's in the book. Yes. So, but just to be clear, you left the Rolexes, but you stole the the. the they were all guys. gifts. They were all gifts. <laughs> but I just thought the Rolex was a bit too much. You know? No, understood. Understood. Right. So, and you've got uh, you've got a new book out, and I'm going to read the. Uh, there is uh, a quote on the back of the book. Brett Anderson, obviously from Suede. There were only a handful of people in the world who still really believed in Suede at the time, and five of them were in the band. And this is, of course, talking about leading up to uh, the release of Coming Up. And Ed Buller, the producer, says that Suede were Marmite at the time. And I was because everybody expects Suede to be, uh, you know, they talk about Suede and think, oh, Suede have always been popular, but uh, Suede were Marmite at the time, and I was expecting the press to trash them. Every meeting I had with record company A&R people, I was told they were done for. Now, this book is called Here They Come With Their Makeup On and examines in detail how Suede emerged from the chaotic, ruined remnants of their career and somehow managed to conjure up their most joyously evocative and celebrated album to date, Coming Up. Now, what what made you decide to write a book about that? Well, it's very simple. Well, two reasons. One, I've always wanted to write a book about an album. Um, you know, it's just I really wanted to sort of, you know, sort of flex my muscles, as it were. And it's an amazing record to write about. The story behind it is incredible. And I, I was also, I had, to, I was on a documentary about, for Sky Arts about a particular record, so I started listening to it religiously again a year and a half ago, just as I did in the olden days. And I remembered what amazing moments I had. I had working on that record with the band. And the story of that record is inc- is extraordinary because Bernard Butler, obviously half the songwriting partnership, had left the band sort of in the last 10 days of the Dogman Star recordings. And um, Suede had recruited a 17-year-old schoolboy guitarist from uh, from Paul in Dorset. Wasn't he a member of their fan club or something? <laughs> Not quite. He, um, I think he, he, he did like Suede. He sent a cassette, and when they first heard it, they thought it was Bernard. They thought it was an old Suede song. You know, that's, that's what happened. And, um, and they, they took Richard on, and Richard had to stay with the manager one week and then somebody else next week. 
Within 10 days, he was on top of the pops, uh, miming to Bernard's parts. Very weird, sort of like, you know, induction. And then they had to tour the whole of Dogman Star with Richard basically learning all Bernard's parts. A, an amazing record, a very dark record, but one they started to hate. So the, by the time they got to the Phoenix Festival on July the 14th, 1995, it was their last ever gig doing all that Dogman Star stuff. They were playing with Bob Dylan. The heavens opened. And it was like quite an you know, extraordinary spectacle where they were drenched. I thought everyone was going to drown and that the band would get electrocuted. That's the second chapter in the book. And um, from out of that, they, the next morning they got up and said, we're going to write an album with 10 hits. It's going to be like Michael Jackson's Thriller. It's going to have 10 Losing My Religions on it. And so they used T-Rex's tanks as a bench, you know, as a benchmark. Got Ed, they got Ed Buller again. They weren't going to use him. And they basically knocked everything into shape, making this incredible pop record. Uh, and then halfway through, when they just started recording, um, this guy called Neil Codling turned up at the, re at the rehearsal studio. And it turned out to see Simon to borrow a suit, the drummer of Suede. And it turned out he was the cousin... And he was an incredible multi-instrumentalist and incredibly beautiful as well. And he was described as more suede than suede. So they said, OK, you can join then. So he joined by Osmosis. And suddenly they were this amazing band, just as much stronger, like a gang, you know, which they, which they weren't to, to, at the end of the suede mark one at all. They were now a gang and they were armed. And suddenly they wrote this song called Trash, which was the final digit in a mobile number. That's how it was described to me by Ed Buller. Um, and so, and of course, no one knew what it was going to do, what it was going to happen. People said, why, why Sway? In the meantime, of course, Oasis had sprung up from nowhere. Pulp had started selling um, records for the first time ever. And Blur just released Park Life, and it was selling 40,000 copies a week. Sway were number four now, you know, in that, in that group. And they were almost forgotten about. So when Trash came out and sold so many records, and coming up sold a million and a half, it wasn't expected. And it was a, a wonderful experience. So I thought I'd write about it. <laughs> it's such a beautiful record as well. I've got it on vinyl, and it's uh, it's one of those where you, uh, like with the most vinyl, you, you get a bit lazy nowadays, and you don't want to have to you know get up and get down. But you don't have to. You just put it on and just let it play. Now, you've chosen a song uh, that actually I've played on the show before, and I'm pretty sure I said is my favourite one off the album, and that's The Chemistry Between Us. Why have you chosen that? Uh, well, that's funny enough. It's Brett's least favourite on the record. I've chosen it because it's Neil's. It's the first thing Neil wrote, really, for, for the album. And because I'm not, a, I don't care whether bands like their own songs or you know, or, or disown their own songs. It's all about what you connect to with the song. And because of the lyric, class A, class B, is that the only chemistry between us? It's one of the greatest lyrics of the Britpop era, I think. So I think because of that and because of this, it's just beautifully put together. Now, I've got a confession about that lyric. For years, and I'm talking 15 years onwards, I, I thought that class A, class B, is that in chemistry? I thought he meant that the woman he fancied was in chemistry set A, and he was in class B at school. And, yeah, I mean, how naive am I? No, that's, it has got d a double meaning. It is that as well. That, that's, you know, so there's nothing wrong with that at all. Obviously, it's a drug reference. It's a school reference as well. And that's what I write. That, I actually talk about that in the book, in that chapter, about the fact that it's about a chemistry lesson that I never attended. <laughs> uh, well, we're going to play that now, uh, Chemistry Between Us. Another long one, uh, nearly seven minutes, but we're going to play that now. And then after that, we'll talk a bit more about that and maybe a bit about pulp and, uh, and some of the other things. And we do have, we've run a competition and we have one of your books to give away, so you'll have to pick the winner of that. So this is The Chemistry Between Us by Suede. You're listening to The Britpop Show. Sponsored by Creation Day Festival. Playing the best and the rest of Britpop.
That's The Chemistry Between Us by Suede off their amazing album coming up. And we have with us today, it's a real privilege to have with us today, Jane Savage, who represented Suede right at the height of their of their fame. And Jane is releasing a book, Here They Come With Their Makeup On, and it's released on the 12th of April. And it, I'm reading the back cover. Coming up, which is the record in question on the book, stumped the band's most ardent critics and hit the jackpot with sales that eclipsed those of their first two releases combined. As the band's publicist throughout that area, it, throughout that period, Jane is uniquely placed to reveal exactly how they did it. Jane, the album, the, the uh, book is out on the 12th of April, and um, we'll be giving a, a copy away uh, very shortly. But reading the book, I mean, anybody who's a fan of Britpop needs to read this book, along with your first book, uh, The Lunch with the Wild Frontiers. But anybody who's a fan needs to. But I notice that there's some other bands in there that it says you represented. It says you represented Suede, Pulp, The Verve, Elastica, Long Pigs, Menswear, Marion, Ultrasound, Echo Belly, The Auteurs, Black Box Recorder, and Cooler Shaker. Yes. Well, I like to say I, like to say I represented... 62.5% of all Britpop bands, mainly because there was a Britpop Now show. Do you remember that in, uh, in uh, the 90s, presented by Damon Albarn wearing a deerstalker hat? And funny enough, Oasis and Suede weren't on it. So I wonder who chose the bands. But yes, so that's, um, so they were the two, I mean, I knew, I knew those, all the people in those bands, and Oasis and Blur, and I know that Blur actually probably wanted me to do their press at the time, but, but I wasn't allowed to. But yeah, I did most of them, I guess. That list is, um, is you know, there's even more that we did, like 60-foot dolls, for instance. You might remember so much. Powder, Fluffy, all that lot. Who were the easiest to, to uh, deal with and who were, the, who were the hardest? Gosh, that's a very difficult question. Who was the easiest and who was the hardest? Easiest? Do you know what the easiest was? Was Luke Haynes of the auteurs. Because for some reason, everybody wanted to speak to him. Because he, was, he had such an acerbic wit. That every, every, everything he said was so funny that people just wanted him you know, to, be, to be in the magazine. So he was the easiest. But then, I mean, I, 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 I'd say that personally, but obviously from a commercial point of view, Suede couldn't leave their front door without being photographed. I mean, um, you know, Brett used to do a phone interview from the studio for the cover of The Enemy at one point. Um, and then I guess when Elastica formed, there was so obviously going to be a big band that um, Justine said to us in the office, I think I should form a band. And we said, that's not a bad idea, actually, is it? Because <laughs> you're so beautiful and you're talented. You, you dress so stylish and you've got all those connections to everybody else. And, of course, when they first arrived on the scene, I think I remember calling Maldi Maker and saying, you can do Elastica, but you, but you can't put them on the cover. And uh, they obviously had this, this sort of conflict between them all saying, so how was your best at turning down the cover for Elastica? Even though they never offered me the cover in the first place. That was just the mind games I was playing at the time. So they put Elastica on the front cover to annoy me. And um, which obviously, and that happened with menswear as well. Menswear ended up being on the front cover before they released a record. It was becoming a bit of a habit to that point. <laughs> Is it true about menswear that they were being wined and dined in New York before they'd even really done two or three gigs? Yeah, it was a frenzy for everyone there. I mean, some people say that they signed a big deal because someone had their hand up at the wrong point in the bidding process. Um, but there's lots of unkind things said about Mensa because they had to grow up in public, you know? I mean, they had, some, they had no time to develop at that point. Everything was like in ever-decreasing circles. There was, you know, there were bands that... We started getting tapes of bands that sounded exactly like Suede, even Letters, which now Ed Sheeran gets, you know, <laughs> saying, we, we wrote The Drowners or something, you know, with a, with, and then with, with no tape in it, so in case your tape would arrive and it sounded nothing like anything. It was just amateur rubbish so i think Britpop. i mean you talked about we talked about the end of Britpop earlier and the jury's out on when that actually was i think john harrison's book said it was when england got knocked out of euro 96 stuart pierce missed his penalty and the bbc played casts walk away that was the end of Britpop for him for me it was getting rubbish tapes in the post <laughs> yeah I, I think that was probably the start of the decline of Britpop. a lot of people say it was the death of diana that was also the death of Britpop. yes Yes, of course, which was obviously around the same time as The Drugs Don't Work, I think. So um, Elton John was at number one when The Drugs Don't Work should have been at num number one, obviously beat it. But lots of, lots of the Britpop bands were kind of... I mean, when I, I ended up sitting on a table with Robson Green from Robson Jerome at the Cheltenham Festival on Friday, and I neglected to tell him, and I wish I had, 
that he kept common people off the top spot, you know, which was, a, and, and their song was like a terrible cover of a 1960s song. So, I mean, Oasis and Blur got to number one. A lot of the other ones just ended up, you know, never getting to number one. But they kept another one off as well. I think there was a really, it might have been a Blue Tones or something like that. They, they, they there's a couple where they kept off the top. It's, it was an tra- absolute travesty. They were the scourge of Britpop. <laughs> Because um, I remember saying to uh, saying on the show that if you don't know who Robson and Drome are, um, ask your ask your mum when your dad's not around. Yeah, yeah. Right. One of the bands that you represented, who I absolutely adore, are Long Pigs. Tell me about Long Pigs. Well, Long Pigs. Crispin was a long-standing friend. Well, I say long-standing. He was desperate for me to do his press. I think at the time because he'd seen what I'd done with Suede, Richard Hawley. Um, wasn't so keen on me, I don't think. I don't mind saying that. And uh, I think he, he he thought I was advising Crispin uh, to change the name Long Pigs because I didn't think it would work. And that's because I've always had this theory about the word pigs. People don't like to go into a shop and, uh, and say the word pigs because they, the uh, the person behind the counter will look at them and think they're a pig. <laughs> that's just my, that's why they want We Are the Pigs to be released as a single by Swade. And it, and uh, I was right. It didn't it didn't chart very well. So anyway, so the Long Pigs. Well, one of those underground bands. I mean, that everybody they supported everybody. You know, they were like a kingmaker of the era. I loved them so much, and I remember um, um, Crispin became a, still a very good friend of mine. And um, I can't believe that on and on, one of their greatest tracks, a bit like Floodlit World, wasn't a massive hit. Well, I'm about to play on and on, but you just said about Crispin being uh, one of your uh, best friends. Crispin is one of my top three targets for the show. We've had lots of people on the show, and Crispin is right up there as one of my targets. Okay, well, I'll ask him later. Amazing, amazing. Right, I'm going to play on and on, and then we'll talk some more about your new book. Okay.
don't interrupt a song like that. That is On and On by Long Pigs. It does not get any better than that song. And I have in the studio Jane Savage, who represented Long Pigs back in the day and has been telling us throughout the show about her adventures in Britpop. And just a reminder, I've reminded you, you, all guys, you guys all before, but there is a, a book coming out by Jane Savage, uh, on the 12th of April, here they come with their makeup on about Suede and coming up the new album. And there is an, a book out already called Lunch with the Wild Frontiers that came out in 2019. So basically what you can do is you can go out and buy that now. And then by the time you finish reading that, the new book will already be out. Now, Jane, there is one, believe it or not, we haven't done the cheesy question yet. <laughs> there is one cheesy question that I always ask everybody, and that is, who is the most famous person on your phone? Now, before you answer that, I'll give you some context. I asked Alan McGee, and he said, Joaquin Phoenix. And I asked um, Sonia from Echo Belly, and she said at one point she had Madonna on her phone. Oh, gosh. Well, at one point in me, it would be Donny Osmond. And now it's probably Damien Hirst, something like that. Does that help? Uh, absolutely. Do you, uh, have you got Jarvis? Do you know what? I've got his email. I haven't got his number. No, he's oh. probably ignoring me. Oh, do you know what? I'll give you Crispin. Crispin, I'm, I'm very, I'm very impressed with. And the other question that we always ask people, I don't know, I don't know whether you're actually going to answer this one, is what's the most rock and roll thing you've ever done? The most rock and roll thing I've ever done. I mean, David, there's so many, but I suppose in the first book, there's, there's a story in there about when I go to uh, Tea in the Park in 96 and um i get shown to the wrong room with this girl girl i'm i'm with and um, we go into the room and we stumble across a huge amount of narcotics as it were and then we realize that the band that um uh, it's, it's not our room it's 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 my birthday and i think she's representing beck so for some reason we both think we've given the room to each other as a special present and um <clears throat> i mean i don't know how much of this story i'm allowed to stay on the radio but the band, um, we, we, looked, we looked around, there was a kitchen, there was like a, a suite, it was so enormous, it could not possibly have been afforded by any of us. And it belonged to a band who were playing on, an, on a stage, which was 45 minutes away. So we just decided to sort of indulge ourselves, I suppose, and then, um, and then leave and sneakily put the key back on reception. That's quite rock and roll, I guess. Uh, absolutely, absolutely. Right, we have one more thing to do before we move on to, we're moving towards the back end of the show. Uh, we have to pick, we have a competition for somebody to win this book, and this book is not out, of course, until the 12th of April. Now, I've picked three potential winners at random, and I'd like you to choose the winner from these three. We have Will Harris. Oh, God, so the other two are going to hate me. That's not fair. Well, the... Um, yeah, well, <laughs> sorry about that. We have Will Harris, Jessa Muffin, seventy nine, or Mrs P. Okay, I'll go for Mrs P. Mrs P. Congratulations. The other two, close but no cigar, but ought to go out and buy this book. It's out on the twelfth of April, and it's called Here They Come with Their Makeup On. It's on Amazon now. Go and pre-order it. It's amazing. You can also pre-order um, signed copies from Rough Trade if anyone wants to do that. That is a much better idea. Go and order signed copies and rough trade because who wants to feed uh, any more to, uh, to Jeff Bezos than we need to? Right, we're going to move to uh, something by Elastica. You chose Connection. I chose Connection just because it's my favourite song. I mean, obviously, it's not their first single. It's so, it felt so bouncy when it came out, you know? So, um, and that's uh, it's still my favourite song. It was played at the Super Bowl, you know, only about five years ago. It still sounds really fresh today, I think. Well, let's give it a go. Coming up, top tunes and great banter. Well, maybe on the banter, but the tunes are good.
connection by Elastica and we're there at the end of the show. It just leaves it to me to say thank you to Jane for joining us. Thank you so much, Jane. Thank you. Uh, and good luck with the book. Uh, just a quick reminder to everybody, it's called Here They Come With Their Makeup On. If you are a fan of suede or anything Britpop, you need to go and buy this book now. I'm going to leave you guys with another band that Jane PR for back in the day. This is Marion. Let's all go together. Thank you again, Jane. Thank you, David. Thank you, David.